Welcome back, everyone, to the show. Uh, I'm your host, Edmund Mitchell. Um, I'm not much of a host. I'm just kind. Of, I just kind of talk into a microphone. And today was one of those one of those times that we talked into a microphone and uh, recorded a conversation. I've had a few conversations with Kevin Clay uh, over the past couple years, and consider him a friend. And we talked. We've well, we first came in contact through this project of his called Monk Rock. And Monk Rock was this super cool website. Uh, it you know punk. It was like punk rock meets the monastic life. Um, I think the tag was you don't have to be a monk to live like one. And it was very interesting mix between uh, just Kevin, Kevin being authentically himself. Man, I hate that word. Authentic, authentically. Like I hate that word as like a qualifying adjective. He was just, he was being himself. Um, and you know, the music side of him, which we talk about in the podcast, um, but also infusing it into this idea of the monastic life. And at the time for me, it was this, and I talk about this in, when, when we're talk, interviewing, talking, um, for me, it was this real freedom for me. I, I don't have to have a certain type of, um, of persona or so I, my Christianity doesn't have to have a certain, um, what I thought of as my, you know, these preconceived notions of what it means to be to be Christian, to live out this life. And I think we all, we all live in that tension. We talk about this. We say tension like a million times. If you want to play a drinking game, I think Kevin mentions this, just take a shot every time uh, someone says the word tension in this conversation. But this tension between uh, being of, being in the world and being of, of God, being, you know, the human and the divine and those types of things, the tension between these like guilty pleasures we might have, you know, that, okay, not guilty pleasures, innocent pleasures, right? Like, like making music or, or doing a thing. And that tension between, you know, is what I'm doing a Christian thing now? And if it's a Christian thing, does it have to look a certain way? And like, what is my responsibility in, in acting, living out this, this religious commitment that I have, this, this commitment that, that does, you know, penetrate my whole life. And, um, so it's just this tension and I don't necessarily consider myself an artist or but maybe like kind of creative. And I'd done these things. So anyways, monk rock was this thing I came across and then I had this like brain idea baby in my head to make this thing called reverb culture. And, you know, like constantly when I talk to people, I'd say, you know, it's, it, it's like monk, it's like this website monk rock, but for the catechism and, just weird things. So Kevin, Kevin has been someone I've looked up to for a long time. And when I eventually, you know, got in touch with him, uh, you know, I was like this, this like little fan, fan, just huge fan through monk rock. But he also has this other aspect of him, you know, all this music and this creative aspect of him. So I really enjoyed this conversation. So all of this long intro, just to say that, uh, you know, the first, I think, to be honest, the first 20 minutes or so, we're just kind of talking about, I forget what we're talking We're talking about things that, but really around like the 28 minute mark, we really start getting into the heart of, uh, you know, his experience, uh, in the nineties and the, like when Christian music really started hitting, um, when cr- Christian music really started becoming this, this industry and his experience with that and coming out of that. And then, so anyways, smart guy, very, very deep, deeply, th- deep thinking. Uh, guy so um yeah this is our conversation and as i talk about in the in the podcast like 
you know, I don't have a, I don't have an agenda for this. This isn't a thing. Like this is this is, of all the creative weird things that I do online. This is one of one of the things that I do that's most, I guess, purely without agenda or like I'm not trying to to make some viral thing. I'm not trying to teach or any of that. I just love the podcast medium. I pr- I need to stop talking about the stop talking about the podcast on the podcast, but I end up doing that towards the end of every episode. But all that being said that, um, you know, if you want to help support this thing, if you want to help, I don't know, encourage me to keep doing this thing, even though I'm going to keep doing it. But if you want to just give me a high five, I guess, or just, I don't know, this is getting awkward. If you just want to, help support this there is a way that you can do it and instead of me slap i don't want to slap ads on this but at the same time you know it would make it would help if this made sense if this could support itself if this could be a thing that supported itself so um so yeah so you can support this on patreon.com slash the show and then that's a way for you to support independent media like this like support content like this or things that people make things that i'm making like this but also you can become part of part of the show in the sense that I'll tell you who's coming, who's going to be on the show. You can submit questions. We can kind of have that little community there of, of me creating these things and you be being a part of that and supporting that. So anyways, that's my one little, my, my guilty sellout moment right there to just say, you know, you can go to patreon.com slash the show and support this. So I, yeah, I, I really, I really am excited about, um, this episode and you guys hearing from Kevin and kind of, um, yeah, just working through what we're working through. So that's it. I think uh, I want to thank our Patreon. Yeah. I want to thank our Patreon supporters, Tim Glomkowski and Steve Bush. They got in early. They got in while it's cheap. They got in while, while before our IPO, um, and I just want to thank them for supporting this show and um yeah, and what we're doing. What what we're doing, what I'm doing here, what what you and I and us are doing. So enough enough with the awkward intro. Um but in the spirit of being authentically myself, here's a here's an authentic conversation with the authentic Kevin Clay. You staying home tonight? I hadn't planned on it, no. Plan on it. Hello. Hey, Kevin. Are you there? Yeah, can you hear me? Okay. Keep talking, because it sounds really weird. Oh, what about now? Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you. It was just kind of... Oh, yeah. I, <clears throat> I'm not a pro yet. I'm not a pro yet. Yeah, hold on. I mean, hang tight. I got to finish one thing. Okay. Yeah, I think it's good. Sounds like you're you're producing. <laughs> uh, yeah, I started uh, like, uh, writing again. <clears throat> At first, just to remind myself that I still do music. I don't just do... Branding and marketing and <laughs> stuff like that, but then that opened the floodgates, and now I've got three songs in three days. So, three songs in three days that you're having to to produce. Uh, I'm just writing. I mean, I'm demoing it out, <clears throat> but 
Oh, but you're on a deadline yeah. or something? Someone put you on a deadline? No, no, no. Oh, no, not at all. I'm just writing. Ah. But when I start, when I start writing, and it kind of comes in waves, so... Um, so that's kind of what I've been doing, um, along with everything else. But I've been working on some new songs. That's exciting. When's the last time you put out music? Put out music? Um, well, um, I did an album, Youth Equals Wasted, under the soundtracks for Wasted Youth. And mm-hmm. I've released it like three times. So, <laughs> uh, And I, I keep taking it down and putting it back up. So I just put it back up. Um... I don't know, a couple of weeks ago. So, Soundtracks for Wasted Youth, Youth Equals Wasted is up on Spotify, Apple, and all that stuff. I'm, like, making a, um, making a note for the... That's cool. Yeah, yeah, Valentine's Day, that's where I was, because it was Ash Wednesday. That's what I did. I was thinking... I like to, I don't know, for some stupid reason, I like to think of the release date and try to find some kind of significance. I don't know, I guess that's the uh, liturgical... Um, part of me. Yeah. Wait. Um, so, are you related to uh, Wasted Youth, also known as LA's Wasted Youth, the hardcore no. punk band in the early 1980s? No. This is waste. Uh, wasted is, equals youth. No. This is soundtracks for Wasted Youth. Gotcha. I'm sorry. And then man. the name of the al yeah the name of the album is Youth Equals Wasted. So uh, okay. I released it for like the third, fourth, fifth time. Anyway, on uh, Ash Wednesday, Valentine's Day, whichever day you were celebrating, <laughs> what's up there? Um, I mean, that's kind of the constant thing is um, I've just kind of been rebranding my music. Yeah. So that's kind of my ongoing um, identity crisis. <laughs> right? I, mean... I, have all the, I have all this music. Um, and then I've, you know, collaborating with other people and creating even more new music. So I've got all my old music and all this new music and I continue to make music. And so the question is, well, what name does it go under? Yeah. So, and so anyway, so mm -hmm. no, what were you going to say? I mean, currently where I've got it categorized right now is soundtracks for wasted youth will be. Probably all of my kind of like back catalog that was out under my little like China or Kevin Clay or whatever else. Um, and stuff that I'm doing kind of as a, a collaboration, uh, which was Youth Wasted Youth for a while, it's going to be now uh, SCAC for Shock City Artist Collective. Ah, so Youth um, Wasted Youth is now is being, is being bought out. I guess just, so. Yeah. I, that's bought, the, I bought myself. I bought myself out. Yeah, that's the sexy way to put it, to put it, right? Yeah, yeah. It was the most money I lost and uh, gained in the same day. No. Um, <laughs> well, that's cool, man. So, Shock City. I, I, gave, I gave myself a great deal. I'll yeah. That yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is this is why I feel this is why I feel like uh, I just can relate to you a lot with all these little. I mean, you've watched me do. S- s- pretty much the same thing over and over again with myself with right. all of these different things like it's um what are we doing man i don't know what we're doing i try to tell myself and my wife that this is my retirement plan is to just slowly <laughs> try to make something i mean maybe by the time i'm 70 one of these things has to work 
Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> you just, I feel like, I feel like you're, I feel like you're more of a purist. You just enjoy the process more than I do. I, I'm just like looking for a retirement mm-hmm. plan. I don't know. I don't know if you and I are that different. I mean, I think it's just how we handle the pressure. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think we do things because, you know, um, we're creative. You know, we watch TV. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we do things that we love, we're passionate about, and we're passionate about many things. Other people would say too many things. Do you do, so how uh, much of, how much of this stuff do you do in your free time? Because Shock City is now your full-time job, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess what I've learned over the years is that um, I, I want to do what other people would say. I want to do too many things. Yeah, that's my life. Uh, you that's know, my life. And so people, you know, their friendly advice is always, if you could just focus on one thing. Yeah. And I found that that's impossible. Not that I can't focus. It's just that I want to do more than one thing. Yeah. And so the way that I kind of cheat in a, but, you know, I do take it as a challenge um, to at least honor the, the spirit of the rule. Yeah. And that is to try to make the many things I'm trying to do function as one thing. Yeah. Um, try to bring them all under so one I, thing. Yeah. And not just call it the same thing, but just make them kind of be interconnected. And so every, every part kind of serves the whole, which in a sense kind of serves the other parts as well. Um, <clears throat> and that's helped me a lot because then I can – look at some projects and say, well, how does that fit within this hole? And if it doesn't, then I'm like, then that's what I have to say no to. So how do, so how do, you, I, how do you describe the hole or how would you define, <laughs> how would you define your hole? I, I, I can't seem to define what is like the big thing I'm trying to do. Well, I, for me, cause I love kind of branding. So yeah. like right now, um, the hole I'm calling Shock City Artist Collective. Gotcha. And sometimes it's abbreviated SCAC, kind of like ACDC. Yeah. Um, so Shock City Artist Collective allows me to do most of what I want to do. So for myself, I can release all the music that I write, produce, work with other people. You know, if it kind of fits the collective, then we just put it out as the collective, SCAC. You know, and then the label that puts it out is Shock City Artist Collective. Um, now if it's a different kind of project, like one of my old albums or something, that's just me, um, I'll create a separate brand. So soundtracks for wasted youth. So that fits with, but that's one of the artists you could say under shock city artist collective. Um, but then I've got crazy ideas like, you know, um, Vic, you know, the vacuum cleaner, you know, so it's a photo is literally of a vacuum cleaner that I've kind of personified. <laughs> And so I can just put that under the collective and post pictures of the vacuum cleaner with some kind of conversation between me and the vacuum cleaner. <laughs> or I've got, you know, the quotable Dean, which is this, you know, kind of Andrew Dice Clay alter ego. And I get to do that. I've and, seen this. Yeah, I've seen that. Uh, yeah. So all the different things that I want to do personally, you know, as an artist, um, I don't have to pick one of them. I can do all of them and kind of put it under the hole. And currently that would be under Shock City Artist Collective. But what I also love to do is I actually love to help other people yeah. fulfill their kind of artistic or business ventures. And, um, you know, and since I only have so much, you know, to offer, so it's not like I can 
offer a big like record deal. But yeah, even so many of my friends who, you know, I'm fans of their music. I just, you know, some of them I've co-written some of the songs or produced their albums or some of them I've had nothing to do with it, but I'm just a fan and a friend. Just find ways that we can kind of be strategic partners. You know, we can collaborate on different projects or maybe I can brand, use their identity and kind of brand that my own way or and create some graphics and merchandise from that. And so I basically like to brand everything. <laughs> and then everything I brand, I want to merchandise. <laughs> so that's kind of uh, who I've become over the years. Man, I'm really attracted. Um, I'm really attracted now to this idea of the umbrella, the umbrella brand, because I mean, I mean, I should just say for people who don't know, but when I started way back in the day, this idea, I even feel ashamed just bringing it up now at this point. But reverb culture was this idea. But that was mm-hmm. heavily influenced by you. Like you are to to blame for for reverb culture. I think I've told you this. Well, you're you're partly. Yeah, to, to... I mean, yeah. Well, that was what was so funny is because you were so inspired by monk rock, which I was constantly in identity crisis over that. Yeah. And then I met you, and I saw reverb culture. I'm like, oh, I love it. It's so sim- simple and focused. You know, this idea of kind of building a culture around the catechism. But you felt like I did, like, oh, but you want to do all these different things, and I don't know what it is. And, um, but, you know, that's you know, why we get along so well, because yeah. we like each other. Yeah, um, that, was ex- that was exactly it, though, was, was finding Monk Rock. And, and uh, so you, you're Monk, I mean, I don't know how much you want to talk about Monk Rock. I mean, I know that that's, that's hard, because it's like, it's like you're, trying, <laughs> you're trying to bury these things. But, but like... Um, no, I don't mind. Well, but like what I, what I appreciated about it for me was it was the first time way back when, when I first kind of came across it, I don't know, like 2011 or 12 was, was feeling like, okay, wait, this is this guy putting his own spin on, like just being himself in the context of, I mean, for that website, it was monasticism or like, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to be a monk to, to live like one basically, or or that kind of idea. And I was like, man. Right. That's it. that really speaks to me because I have this passion for this thing that I feel like is not uh I don't see anyone I don't see anyone who looks like me passionate about this thing. Like everyone that was passionate about the catechism <laughs> were were people that I didn't want to hang out with. <laughs> so at the time. And so I was like, man, like mm-hmm. I like this really gave me it really gave me permission to go, okay, I'm just gonna I'm gonna do me but passionate about this thing and just kind of and then the idea of branding it which I think sometimes takes on negative connotations, branding, but, but it really is this thing that's fun, which is coming up with the, yeah, like the, the taste and feel of it, you know, and, and putting it out there. And I don't know, that, that, that is such a fun, like a fun endeavor and project to do. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm glad that you, you got that from, I mean, there were times in non that I, I did feel like I was doing what you said, you know, I was trying to honor the Catholic faith, honor, you know, kind of the history of monasticism, not focusing on one particular, you know, order or expression, but what was the kind of the essence of monasticism and say, well, I think everyday people can live this. Um, And and there were times I felt that I also realized it was somewhat of a reflection of myself, you know. Yeah. Yeah. but as you know, you know, there are expectations and people take things the wrong way. Um, you know, definitely when you bring in, you know, some things that were Orthodox or some things Catholic and 
then both sides don't like one using the other, and then you get into all the type of stuff where people get offended, or or some people are offended by the idea that lay people are trying to be monastic, you know. Yeah. So, as you know, those are the things that are difficult because then you start questioning everything, or then you feel like you can't be yourself, or you can't say true to the vision, um, or there's things within the church, you know, concerns of um, making sure that you, you know, are honoring, honoring the hierarchy and this or that. So, you know, it's difficult. You know, and then obviously trying to make it uh, financially provide for itself and the pressures of that. So, I mean, it's, <laughs> as you know, that I mean, that's where so much of the struggle. I, I don't think it's just a creative process. Yeah. You know, I think it's a lot of times it's the finances. Yeah. Know? Yeah, that force you to think, well, this has to make money, and it's not making enough money. So, how can I change it without changing it? You know. Yeah. And then once you get get in, you get kind of chasing your tail on that. It's easy to get kind of, you know, lost. Yeah, and um, it's and it's hard when you're if uh, it's hard as well. And I'm sure. I mean, I feel so. I feel like a baby talking about things that like mature adults have known their whole lives because I feel like these are things that like more tried it like I always feel un- totally unqualified to talk about these things but I I do think that uh it's something like a musician's dilemma when your fans the people who are making you <laughs> kind of don't don't actually represent what the heart of what you're trying to convey you know it's like what like what what happens when all the people who love reverb culture but then you do something that comes out of the spirit of it and then it's like they're totally upset that you did that thing or, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's such a weird, right. it's such a weird dynamic. Like same, like what you were saying with monk rock where, where originally what you created came from this pure place and then you do something else. And the people that kind of made you or just helped put you on or support you, uh, also don't get this new thing you're doing or the way that you're, you're like, well, no, this is, this has been it the whole time. You just haven't really understood it. You know? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if I, yeah, it is that, but the problem is, you know, as kind of like the founder and the creator of it, I, I got lost, and that's, that was the hardest thing. It is very similar to being, a, you know, a, a musical artist, well, any kind of artist that puts out works, is that you gain an audience for one particular work. Yeah. You know, like in music, okay, you put out an album, you get fans who like that. Well, and they want more of that, but what if you want to do something different on the next album? Well, then they feel betrayed, but then you gain new fans who like, you know, second. Then maybe they go back to the first and like that too, but maybe they don't. But once you get down the road to three, four, five, six, ten albums, I mean, you've <laughs> uh, offended and, you know, pleased countless people multiple times because you just didn't repeat yourself. And... Um, I think with a, with a business brand, um, it's a little bit like that, but in this case, I would say it's a little bit worse because, I mean, I truly felt lost with Monk Rock many times because, um, I either didn't have the resources to do, you know, what I wanted to do, which then makes me question what I'm doing, all that kind of stuff. So, um, I mean, I did it 15 years and I will at least say, um, I mean, I know it made a positive difference in a lot of people's lives and I'm happy for that. And, um, you know, it's not a hard thing to talk about at all at this point. Do, do you, look, um, 
Do you look back on it and this is something this is a question that haunts me is do you look back on it as a success? <laughs> um, no. Because, yeah, because I you know, I feel so conflicted about that, but then at the same time there's part of me that goes, I don't know if I would ever rest enough to be able to say, yeah, this thing I'm doing has now reached successful or it's like it's re- like I feel like I'm always going to be unsatisfied with the 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 moment I'm in with whatever project I take on. Yeah, I, I don't I don't feel that way. Um, you know, to me for I mean, for me to be satisfied myself, like I would say it's a successful is to me it's more of did I achieve the end? Yeah. You know. It, it to me it's not that it, it made money. Um or that it became big or, or had a lot of fans or followers, that to me is not success. I'm not saying yeah. that's not part of success. And I'm not trying to even be like, you know, um, idealistic about it. But I, I am being honest about it personally, maybe even to a fault. To me, success is, did I realize the vision? And if I feel like I realized the vision, then I would say that's a particular level of success. Now, that's not all that I want to do with the thing, but that's a key one for me. So if I feel like, you know, like when I'm, you know, I complete a song and I've, I've written it, I've recorded it, mastered it's out. And like, yeah, that's success. And you're like, yeah, but no one's heard it. Oh, true. But I consider success as an artistic work because it became what I wanted it to become. We reached its potential. Yeah. Um, and I, and I don't pick it apart and go, well, it could have been better this or that. I mean, it could have been different. Maybe it'd been better, but I'm happy. I consider it a success. But then if I say, well, what I want to do with the song is I want to, you know, bring in X amount of revenue, or if I want to achieve other things on top of that, well, then that's a different kind of success. And I could say that's a success or failure. Um, but my, I would say, you know, really where my conscience lies and what drives me to do it is that if I feel like, you know, I really realize kind of the dream. Uh, with Monk Rock, where I feel disappointed is that um, I feel like its identity crisis kept undermining the success that I, I did create for it. Um, I don't think I, I mean, I had an initial vision that was pretty close, but I do think it did develop into something a little different. Uh, it started off a little bit. It was serious, you know, and had an element of kind of like ministry apostolate, but it was meant to be kind of a pop culture yeah. and a lifestyle brand. Um, but as I started building it, it became a little bit emphasis more on the serious side of things, which was fine. I mean, it had, I mean, I created a worldwide religious order around it. Yeah. You know, the oblates and, and it was very much attached to that. Um, but, um, yeah, I, I just wish, yeah, I just wish it would have kind of just had enough time being what it was as opposed to always constantly redefining it. Yeah. Um, that... so you, you live and learn. So I kind of look at it so much like, it's almost like it was a 15 year uh, work in progress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 That's how I feel. I mean, I mean, it feels, I mean, my wife doesn't, uh, like it when I just, you know, after something like that, I go, well, I learned a lot, but I really do feel that way. Like, like I feel like with a lot of these things, even 
even though they might not have turned out the way I wanted to, like I, I definitely feel like I'm honing some type of skill. Um, and, and yeah, like it's, I'm at the place now where I, I'm not sure, you know, at what point do you, at what point do you say the band's broken up or is it, or do you even have to say that? Do you just kind of like, at what point do you officially go this project? I mean, you, you had a def, very definite ending for your, right, I got this, yeah. Yeah. For your right. journey of monk rock. But for me, I'm like, man, like, do I just not do anything about, do you just not do anything with it for years? And then that's it. Or, um, I don't know. It's like, it's like hard as I know I'm just, I'm putting off making any decisions about it or anything like that. But, I like what you said. Though, I think about, it's. Uh, what? Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say I like what you said about um, instead of like instead of just thinking was the vision was the vision realized as opposed to right. did it go, did it reach worldwide success or all those other things? It's just like well, was the vision right. re- realized? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think yeah. I just feel like with Monk Rock, the identity crisis kept it. Somewhat held it back, but it, I mean, one good thing about Monk Rock is that it was public. You know, it wasn't just this idea that I worked on privately for 15 years. Yeah. You know, I mean, I went to conferences around the country for nearly 10 years. You know, I think combined with all the people at the conferences, I mean, you know, it was over 100,000 people every year um, going to conferences all over the country. You know, and then you've got kind of the countless people online. Uh, I mean, I've built even long-term relationships from that. I mean, there were other organizations that were, you know, created that were inspired by that. There are people who have, um, you know, it, it kind of helped them kind of find their own identity and vocation or this monastic inclination. And um, I, I do know it reached a lot of people and, you know, made a difference in a lot of people's lives. Um you know, and then the products were worthwhile. It wasn't just, you know, some, swag and a meaningless promotional material. I mean, <clears throat> some people, dang good coffee. I mean, <laughs> some dang really good, good coffee. coffee. Yeah. But I mean, I, you know, a lot of the conferences that, you know, I sold a lot of books. I sold a lot of other people's books, you know, <laughs> yeah. I distributed. Yeah. And sold a lot of t-shirts. I sold tons of rosaries and tons of prayer ropes and, help people learn how to pray the rosary and the Jesus prayer. And um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, when I think about it in that way, as opposed to the, the, the struggle, the difficulty it had on me and my family. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm proud of that, you know? Um, yeah. There, there does come a point when you have to know when to let go. And I was, you know, I wasn't sure for a while, so it kind of sometimes runs on autopilot, but then once I sold it, then obviously, um, you know, it wasn't mine anymore. And, um, you know, I'm never short on ideas. And Did that, did that feel like... I huge... gotta have, I... What were you going to say? What? Well, I, you know, and I've had this other kind of pop culture, um, kind of multimedia model that I've also built off and on over the years as well. Mm-hmm. So this is something like what I'm doing now with Shock City Artist Collective, you know, I, I've been doing since, you know, the mid nineties, you know, uh, under different names like fashion. I had fashion pop entertainment for a while, which was a very similar thing. I had a bunch of artists that I was kind of producing and developing and, 
it was kind of part record company, part, you know, kind of fashion, merchandising, you know, branding company. So, um, so, you know, this is an idea that I've tried over and over. So just keep trying. Yeah. It kind of gets perfected over time. Well, I was going to ask um, you, I was going to ask you if it, was it, uh, was it a relief kind of closing the closing that chapter of monk rock? And did you feel like your creative energies or just like your, your, um, resources were be- better used all of a sudden? Did, did it seem, did it seem like once kind of you, ch- you pivoted that it, it gave you a lot of benefits and as far as like focus and stuff like that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that's kind of been my perpetual struggle um, really since, um, you know, as a teenager. Um, I had these aspirations towards music and art and pop culture, but that also coincided with this religious experience I had when I was 16. And I wanted to give my life to God and, and, and serve him you know, and live a dedicated life. Yeah. And I'll be honest, I have really lived in the tension of that ever since, you know, um, uh, you know, the, the struggle I have is I, I see them as almost like kind of two versions of myself. Yeah. Or two persons that are, you know, I wish I could just be one of them. I mean, and this is anyone who knows me well and knows my really deepest struggles. I mean, that's, it's all kind of right there. I mean, I kind of came up with this phrase. Oh, I don't know. It's been at least a decade or so. I always kind of have this sense because I'd always want to choose one or the other. I want to just be like completely focused to this dedicated, like religious life. And from that life of asceticism and prayer, just to serve in whatever way that I can, you know, it's kind of, which monasticism makes perfect, you know, <laughs> sense yeah. for that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just an overflow of kind of your prayer interior life overflows into, you know, serving and ministering to other people. Um, and then kind of creating models around that. Um, but then there's this other side of me that's artistic and um, likes pop culture and rock and roll and punk and fashion and that kind of stuff. And they just seem like, they don't go together at all. And personally, I feel like I had to be like one version of myself or the other. And I had the sense like, well, God wants me to be all of me. I would say. Yeah. Um, you know, and that person like Thomas Merton has always been that voice, I would say, in my life. You know, when I would kind of revisit his works, it would always be that voice of become, kind of becoming the true self, which is one of his concepts he kind of developed throughout his life of you know, kind of becoming the true self and stripping away the false self. And, well, if that's true, you know, part of it's a discovery process of who you are already, but who you are also becoming. It's both of those things. And I'm like, well, if both of these kind of sides of myself is me, and maybe God wants me to be both of these things, <laughs> both of these people, maybe since I am only one person, well, then that's maybe equally me. I feel on a personal level, I feel a little bit more peace about, but there's only so many hours in the day. <laughs> and there's yeah. only, you know what I mean? Yeah, I want to do yeah. it all. And 
Um, it's difficult. I guess where I'm at right now, to be honest, is I feel like um, I, it, it would be very difficult to go both of those directions at the same time. You know? Yeah. I mean, I can, I can integrate that within myself, you know? Yeah. I can still love and serve God. I can still pray and have a contemplative life and, you know, a life of ongoing kind of deification, you know, or salvation, you want to call that. But you still can watch TV, you know, and enjoy watching Portlandia or <laughs> yeah. uh, yeah. Baskets, and you can still listen to the Sex Pistols, you know, <laughs> and not feel guilty about it. Um, yeah. Many years of me <laughs> trying to conquer this kind of false guilt, you know, the rock and roll's bad. Um, yeah, because I never feel guilty about praying the Jesus Prayer. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. You never feel like you're selling out. To, to, like you're not po- you're you're not punk rock. Look at you praying the Jesus prayer. But it's like when you watch Portlandia, then it's like, <laughs> oh man, look at you. You're such a worldly, yeah. sinful yeah, person. Yeah, so worldly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, I don't I don't want to over spiritualize this, but uh, the first thing I thought of was well, one, I wonder if that tension. I I can relate to that tension, but also not in the same th- those two poles of like punk rock and and monastic life, but just feeling that tension. But, um, I wonder in some ways if that's not a really good, um, taste of, I don't know, being both man and God, you know, like Jesus, Mm -hmm. like I've always wondered about that tension of Jesus having the, you know, the, the more worldly human side of him, but also the, the God side of him. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, yeah, I feel like I you're saying I, I, I feel like you're saying that. that that tension is good. I feel like you're saying that tension is good. That's what my intuition is: is that it is good uh, to pull from both directions. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's tension. I mean, I don't like the, I don't enjoy the tension. Yeah, that's true. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, the tension sucks. I will say that, but I do think it's it is part of the mystery of how we, you know, how does man become like God? Yeah, and and I definitely have a greater clarity uh, on that dynamic in that there there must be tension, you know, um, and that's I, I would even say it's part of the the mystery of sin, and not that you know God wants us to sin and that we should want to sin, but you know especially within like the the East, you know whether it be the Catholic East or Orthodox East. Mm-hmm. You know, the language is different. The sin is sin is more in a therapeutic vocabulary than a juridical. You know, that sin is a sickness. That grace is this medicine that heals us. And that the process of becoming like God is not so much just honoring the moral law and avoiding sin. It's recognizing that we have a sickness um, and we need the medicine of God's grace. And part of the mystery is because we're sick, um, it compels us to seek out the medicine. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But otherwise, yeah. if we just felt awesome all the time, it would be easy to forget about God yeah. and to take credit for our own health. And I just think that makes perfect sense when you look at the Christian narrative. Um, so it's never to say that sin is good. It's just that um, through sin... Um, if we seek out the medicine, we seek out God's grace, His forgiveness and mercy, that we see that there's this mystery, this paradox here that it, in a certain way, it sounds crazy, but it, it helps us. It moves us closer to God if, you know, 
you know, we repent. Um, doesn't mean we have to hate ourselves and feel it's just, you know, so worked up over our guilt and contrition. It's just a down-to-earth humility that says, yes, you know, when I forsake God and I go my own way, yeah, uh, I get lost or I don't live up to the potential I have. I recognize that. Well, there you go. <clears throat> and, um, you know, one thing that I've kind of explored for the first time in my life in the last probably year or so is Buddhism. And I, you know, from a Christian perspective, I just see a lot of harmony there and the first noble truth being suffering and that, you know, when you recognize that there's suffering, mm-hmm. that there's pain, that there's something wrong in the world, yeah. maybe something wrong in yourself, that's your first um, moment of awakening and enlightenment. And in Christianity, we just call that the original sin or the ancestral sin, is when you recognize that we admit that there is something wrong, imperfect, and sinful, it's, it's our first step. <clears throat> but it's not a one-time event where we're like, okay, yeah, I'm a sinner, and then I never think about it again, is that we recognize, you know, probably daily throughout the day, you know, that there's suffering, or we call the human condition. Yeah, Um, I feel like there's a lot of people, it takes a while to realize that, uh, like, there's a lot of people who feel like if they come across any difficulties or they come across even sin in their own life, like, or falling short or whatever, that, um, Mm -hmm. that a lot of times we're tempted to go, Oh, well, I, I have the capacity to just be this perfect person. Uh, that was a mistake, but I can just try harder and be a perfect, that it is possible for me to attain this perfect, like kind of situation in my life. And that, yeah. that I don't actually believe that I'm capable of just immense, heinous, evil acts. And I think that's been, yeah. that's been, um, I can't point to any one particular place in my life, but I think just like anyone who reflects a little bit on themselves will realize that they are actually capable of really horrible, horrible things. Like, I mean, <laughs> I don't yeah. know. I mean, anyone that's been at least just, you know, married and had a difficult time, like there's been some times, you know, I mean, me and my wife have, especially the first couple of years of our marriage, I mean, we went through some really dark times where I was like, man, I did not realize the depth of depravity that I'm capable of. And that's such a humbling like yeah, there like suffering is just a thing. Like evil is just a thing that's inside of me. And it's always going to be there. I'm not. I, I just have to to deal with that. Like to just take that as the first step. Yeah, and it <clears throat> we're kind of always at that first step. I mean, we grow. Um, yeah, I, I think I, I. You know, it's not like I reach some great height. I'm just saying is you know that's a difficult concept that Christians struggle with all the time. There's different versions of the faith that explain it, you know, in different ways. But, um, so in no way am I taking sin lightly. Yeah. People always think that if you speak this way, but, um, there is a mystery to it and it's somewhat of a doorway. Um, this, you know, kind of notion. I mean, and I think you see that in the gospels, Jesus kind of taking these examples of, you know, the woman caught in adultery or, you know, the tax collectors and this or that. And, you know, these people that to the Pharisees, we were not wrong objectively about the sinfulness of these particular people. Um, But what they didn't see was the potential for um, forgiveness and 
mercy and repentance and a true change of heart and life. And I just think, you know, Jesus sought out these, you know, and took advantage of these kind of situations. Obviously, those who, you know, um, compiled, you know, the acts of Jesus and in, in, in writing them down and passing them on orally and this or that is, it conveys a message um, that um, though sin is sin, <laughs> it's either a sickness or a transgression or both. It is true. Yeah. Um, but it gives us the opportunity to receive um, a profound expression of God's love. And God loves everyone, but there's aspects of love and merciful love. There's something unique about that. Yeah, like where Jesus, um, where Jesus says, you know, who would love the master more, the one who's forgiven much or the one who's forgiven little? You know, it's like mm-hmm. this opportunity for us to experience. Not that we should go right. <laughs> commit some heinous act to just experience that level of forgiveness, but... Right, St. Paul's that. I mean, we're sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Heaven forbid that we would, you know, intentionally sin. (laughs) But the point is, is that you can't um, ever sin to an extent where God can't um, extend even more grace and mercy. And since that love, by its very nature, because if it's still a creature um, relating to its creator... Um, you know, you can never necessarily earn it or deserve it. Um, and so when we receive merciful love, then it's a clear demonstration of that fact. Um, you know, we can go too far, which is, you know, where the, what the Reformation did and created this notion of total depravity of man, which is, you know, not Catholic or Orthodox at all. Yeah. Um, man is good because God made man, um, and man can choose either to live up to his potential or not. But that intrinsic, inherent goodness is always there. The divine imprint never goes away. Um, So, you know, I believe that. I don't think you necessarily have to be conscious of that, and it's, you know, obviously not just for those who consider themselves Christians. I mean, on the the foundational level, every person is a child of God. Yeah. Um, So... So what? So, yeah, back to go ahead. No, what were you going to say? Well, I was gonna, yeah, come back to your initial point. So I think the tension of you know that I experienced within myself of kind of living this very dedicated and you know, religious spiritual life. I mean, obviously, there's nothing wrong with that, and that may even be, in a certain sense, an explicit ideal. But the idea that um, this tension, as we kind of talked it, about it, of being concerned about lesser things like rock and roll and t-shirts and, you know, personified vacuum cleaners and things like that is, um, I don't know. Yeah, it is an expression. You're right. Of of the incarnation that God would lower himself, but in the very act of doing so elevated, you know, material things, you know, the natural world and humanity. So, um, I don't know. I mean, I still live in the tension, but at least theologically, I I could defend it <laughs> to myself <laughs> and say, um, you know, it's not like, you know, I want to be good and I'm just falling for sin. It's just, um, yeah, there's a part of me that would want to dedicate my entire life just to the higher things, but um, I don't know. There's a mystery to 
you know, being involved in the lower things. Um, and yeah. I mean, God did that, so I guess it'd, it'd be okay if we did that. Yeah. So, so, I don't, um, so, so what happened? So when you were, you said when you were 16, something happened that that mm-hmm. kind of set you on this path because... I mean, how, which which uh, which started first, the punk rock or the or the Jesus or the rock and roll or the Jesus? Which started first for you? I would say at that time uh, it was the rock and roll. I mean, I was you know raised a Christian, raised a Baptist, and you know going to church and things like that. So I always considered myself you know a Christian. But I think like most people, I mean, you know, you went to church, you didn't, you know, most kids don't want to go to church, but, you know, I would feel bad if I didn't go. I mean, I think there was something in my heart. Um, But, you know, I I would say kind of a normal kid. Um, I was into sports and whatever was happening at the time, Star Wars or whatever. Um, And, but I did start getting into, I guess, kind of subculture stuff. I, you know, I got into, um, I mean, I was into music. A lot of that was because of my dad was into music. And I got into kind of alternative or underground music. Um, got into, like, rap in the 80s. I got into breakdancing. I got into that. I got into punk um, and skateboarding. So that was in me. Um, you know, and then, like a lot of people, the band U2 had a huge effect upon me in the 80s. And, I wanted to be Bono, and I thought I was the only one who wanted to be Bono. <laughs> and then I realized there's a lot of people who want to be Bono. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, and that was maybe, a, I think, somewhat of a conduit, because at that time their music was, you know, had a lot of um, Christianity in it because they had a similar experience themselves, you know, kind of a conversion experience. At least three out of the four did at the time. Um. And I don't know, I, I, you know, the way it kind of played out, it was the summer of 86 and uh, I had a group of friends who hung out every day and we basically just had music blasting and we'd be like skateboarding and playing basketball and just whatever was going on. And um, I don't know, I just had this sense of where am I going to be in 10 years? And I was like, I have a feeling I'm going to be right here. And, and that's not where I wanted to be. And I just remember one day, I just didn't go, and I just kind of hung around the house. And then I think it was like that week or something, that night, um, I was just down in my basement bedroom. And I don't know, I just had this overwhelming experience of God and cried and wanted to give my life to God. Wow. <laughs> um, Do you th- but what was interesting about it is I started... Um, writing songs at that night. Now I couldn't play an instrument yet. I was, I kind of started just try to learn how to play guitar, but it was very difficult. So I just write these songs, you know, with kind of the music in my head and I wrote like nine songs that night. So right there, you really, there's the tension, you know? Um, I mean, I, you know, I mean, it was a great experience, you know, there was sort of this beautiful kind of sadness to it. Uh, but I definitely saw it as a turning point in my life, like to be less worldly, that's for sure. Um, whatever that meant, you know, which I, I, I kind of saw it played out, you know, after the fact, because then when I had to go back to school and I was different and I didn't hang around my friends 
you know, and go to parties and stuff like that. Um, everyone just kind of said, oh, Kevin found Jesus or found God or something like that. <laughs> they were cool about it. But I noticed a lot of patterns, you know, my sense of humor, my language, or just how I treated certain people. And I, I kind of saw, like you said, the ugliness of myself, the sinfulness of myself. So, um, Do you think, real quick, do you think if you were, were to go back and talk to you then, would you tell... I mean, this is kind of related to what we were talking about. Would you have told yourself to stop going to those parties or to start to stop? Would you like, would the, would you have given or allowed yourself a little more freedom or I just always wonder, I feel like there's times in our life where we have to kind of form the Catholic ghetto and kind of huddle in and, and kind of build up ourselves. But, but sometimes I wonder how, how true that is that that's necessary or, I don't know, just with the balance. It's kind of been what we've been talking about a little bit. Uh, I, I, would, I wouldn't have changed my decision on those things because I think um, I don't. Yeah, I don't think I missed out on anything. I don't think I went too far by because it was around that time. I mean, things are so different now. Yeah, uh, kids are at such such a younger age are getting into things that you know I never got into, but. Um, yeah, I don't think I missed out by, um, you know, get it, getting drunk or experimenting with drugs and sex and stuff like that, um, in that kind of lifestyle. Plus I was an athlete. And so even though, I mean, I was in I was skateboarding and music and this or that, but I mean, I spent almost all my free time like training. <laughs> I mean, yeah. so, um, so in some ways, the idea of like sacrificing and not going to the pool every summer. I never, I mean, I, I hardly ever went like to the public pool where everyone hung out. Yeah. I was, you know, training eight, 10, 12 hours a day, you know, for tennis or basketball or something. So the idea of doing, making sacrifices for spiritual reasons were not that different than doing it for sports. Yeah. Um, now I'm also prone to extremes and also the kind of Christianity that I was kind of raised in, which I think has always influenced where I'm drawn to. I tend to end up on the fringe, the fringes. Um, you know, so these, I would say uh, if I had to go and talk to like previous, yeah, uh, versions of myself, or I would definitely keep myself from extremes, um, yeah. but I wouldn't consider not going to parties in high school is an extreme. Yeah. Uh, I would say like throwing all my music away like 10 times, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and dressing, you know, really weird or thinking, you know, syncopated music was of the devil or tele all television was bad or, you know, whatever it was, you know, whatever kind of really super spiritual anti-world, which is in every form. I mean, it's in orthodoxy, it's in Catholicism, it's in Protestantism, it's everywhere, you know. Yeah. Um, I really wish I would have, yeah, throughout my life, avoided those extremes. I mean, I cut myself some slack, I mean, to where I, I think my, the re one reason why I end up in the extremes is because, you know, I'm kind of an all-in type of person. Mm -hmm. Um. But I, you know, the things I regret where I would, if I could go back and talk to earlier versions of myself, I would say, 
you know, hey, you know, that's great, you know, that you've, you're passionate about this and it comes from a genuine love in your heart, you know, to do the right thing. But that doesn't mean you have to forsake everything that you enjoy, you know, or, or deem certain things worldly and this is spiritual. I would definitely try to explain that to <laughs> earlier versions of myself. Um, that's such a that. yeah that's such a hard I feel like that's still that's still something I'm trying that's still like a line I'm trying to I'm trying to navigate but so so when does the music though becomes pretty serious or not pretty serious but I mean like I mm-hmm. mean when did you first start kind of putting stuff out there I mean I guess you said you you immediately started writing songs but um, like when was the first time you played in front of a played in front of a group or like played publicly for for people I think I think it was around nineteen ninety or so. Yeah. Um, I eventually, because I you know I wrote about a thousand songs from like my uh, from eighty six to around like eighty nine, close to ninety, wow. and then I at least was good enough. I could play the guitar at least well enough, um, and I started going out to clubs um, in St. Louis. And started following this band called The Eyes, which became Pale Divine. They got a major label deal with Atlantic Records. And anyway, the guitarist now plays for Guns N' Roses. And, um, so I built a relationship with them. They got me in to the shows every week. And so I, t- I built a relationship with the lead singer and said, um, I have, um, you know, these songs. And they're like, well, record it. I'm like, well, I don't know how to record it. So we'll just get a tape recorder or something. So once I started doing that, then I just started writing like crazy, sometimes like 10 songs a day. And um, so I put out these little double-sided cassettes. I did about 500 songs or so for a couple of years. And then um, I started playing out in St. Louis. Um, I'd have to look at the dates, but I think around 90, 91. Oh, and this was in St. Louis, you uh, said? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. So I kind of solo acoustic, and I would kind of do that thing. Um, I was... At the time, I was listening to like the Velvet Underground, Sinead O'Connor, The Cure, uh, Robin Hitchcock, and and then you know was a lot of the music that I you know was introduced through you know The Eyes and stuff like that. Um, so that's really you know that's kind of where I started was these kind of bedroom recordings. It was just me and acoustic, a Casio keyboard, and I would kind of like overdub to a double-sided cassette. <laughs> and yeah. do multi-track recording through that. And like I said, put out about 500 songs, I think, or so. Wow. And then in 92, I formed a band um, with, um, started with this drummer. He was the son of um, my pastor at the time. I was not um, charismatic then. So I formed this band, um, became My Little Dog China, and started as three-piece and a four-piece, and um, you know, we got a, a record deal. I know you wanted to talk about the Christian music industry. And so that's kind of how I got into it. I didn't know anything about Christian music and, um, thank God I was never forced to have to listen to Christian music. <laughs> you had, um, you, you were never forced to, but so was my little dog China, a Christian band <laughs> or was it like, I mean, it was, no, but I mean, it's, it's kind of like, you know, the conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah. Were we a Christian band? No, I mean, we just, we were just a band. I mean, everyone in the band was a Christian, you know, 
and we did see kind of a purpose to it, but none of us listened to Christian music yeah. at all. I mean, was that, that, um, that was a thing around that. I didn't even, I didn't even know it existed. Yeah. I mean, but so we're, I just heard, we're talk- I just, we were just trying to, we we're just trying to get a gig in St. Louis. And so we were recording our rehearsals at the church and then they said, well, we couldn't get a gig. Our demo wasn't good enough. So then we did this five song, I think an eight track or something like that, um, which turned out pretty good. And so a uh, mutual friend said, well, there's this whole industry where you can be a Christian rock star. And I'm like, do you mind if I, you know, send out some tapes and they gave me some addresses? I'm like, sure. And that's really how we got introduced to it. And then, um, you know, we went to Cornerstone, which was like the big music festival at the time and played our first show. And uh, we were in all the magazines and all the radio stations. And then all these labels wanted to sign us. And then we had a record deal. Well, we had producers um, like Steve Handelong and Chris Colbert, which they did all the kind of cool underground stuff. They sought us out and got a record deal immediately. And, and then that was in 93. How old were you then? Um, 23. <laughs> Dang. And so all of a sudden you're like, so, I mean, I guess what I was asking, or I guess trying to mm-hmm. say earlier is like at the time for you guys, it, like asking, are you a Christian band just seemed dumb. Like it just, you're kind of in this, this space where uh, you're kind of protected from that question. Cause it was just kind of a dumb question. It's like, what does that mean? Are we a Christian band? It, it, I mean, it wasn't a, a dumb question. I mean, back then, it, it, I would say it was asked with greater seriousness and I would say most people didn't like the question, but yeah. Um, you know, we know so much more now I think <laughs> than we did then. And there's just, <clears throat> well, it's pre-internet and there's just a lot of secrets and a lot of hypocrisy. I mean, like, the irony was, no, we didn't make Christian music, but why it was ironic, I guess is because, you know, I took my faith very seriously. Yeah. Um, and I did see music. I mean, that's why I even wanted to do music. I saw the power that music had, especially through like you too. And that's what I wanted to do with my life. Now I had this pull towards full-time ministry and that was that, you know, that tension, you know, that I've lived in ever since, but musically, um, I didn't feel a need to be Christian about my music or my lyrics. Um, I, I, you know, I guess it was sort of like the Catholic in me before I was Catholic, you know, is that a Christian artist should just make good art yeah. and good art didn't necessarily mean that art. In fact, I would say when you got into trying to use it as a message to preach the gospel, to me, it ceased to be art and it became more propaganda and, um, and in some ways misusing, you know, the gospel message, mm. um, you know, at that time, that was revolutionary, you know, but I think when you understand, the better, you have a better theology of how, you know, what does it mean to be like Christ? It's not to literally imitate, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, but to become the person God wants you to be. And, I mean, you can do that as any profession within reason. And, and, so as an artist, anyway. But, you know, and part of my tension, though, is that a lot of the art I do is pretty provocative. I mean... <laughs> So it's not even just like I'm just doing bland, the bold road art music and my lyrics. I mean, I, I definitely tend to be provocative about it. So it was definitely controversial at the time. The irony is that 
most of the artists who were very Christian-y about their art did not live a Christian life or even have a Christian faith. It was just a sort of, as you use the term ghetto culture, where you could be cool, where you would not be cool in the general market and where you could make money off of churches and coffee houses and stuff like that. And these festivals, you wouldn't even, they wouldn't even make, be making anything. Yeah. If they were playing bars or clubs. So, so a lot of people in Christian were in Christian music because it was just easier. The competition was less and, um, they kind of played off of that. And then if they really wanted to be successful, then they just intentionally put these God words together and make Christian, quote unquote Christian music. I refused to do that. Was the nineties kind of the, uh, the height or, or like, was it when this started really taking off? Like I, I'm kind of ignorant on like the history of all of this stuff, but I mean, I know we have in like the seventies and eighties, the like Jesus is just mm-hmm. all right kind of stuff. But it seems right. like we kind of hit an, like with, with it coming into, I don't know, rock or that kind of stuff, it seemed like it started, there's like a new trend. It starts really taking off, this idea yeah. of pop Christian music or something like that. Yeah, no, I mean, the 90s was a big turning point, primarily through Tooth and Nail, when Brandon Ebel started Tooth and Nail. I mean, it was kind of a perfect storm. You know, grunge happened, which revolutionized the whole world, you know. You know, essentially through Nirvana's Nevermind, and then just opened the floodgates for what was considered alternative music. Uh, you know, underground that you had to kind of seek out that was happening for decades, you know, from punk and um, all that stuff. Through different, you know, you had the whole DC <clears throat> punk scene, you know, from California to Minneapolis or Hisker Du and the replacements and all this stuff, uh, all underground, and then it eventually broke through. Um, primarily through Nirvana in the early 90s. Um, and then Brandon basically modeled a Christian label off of Sub Pop. Um, and it was just kind of perfect storm. And so that was a turning point because in, in Christian music, it was the same thing. There was an underground scene that existed before Tooth and Nail. Like Mike, Mike Nod had this label called Blonde Vinyl. Um, you had different magazines like Harvest Rock Syndicate, Brian Quincy Newcomb, who's still writing. And, um, you know, it's kind of like the notion of the the pioneers get the arrows, <laughs> the settlers get the land. <laughs> there were a lot of pioneers in Christian music. I mean, going back to the Jesus movement, yeah, people like Larry Norman and these people who kind of left the general market to kind of sing about Jesus. But even within that, there were those who were a little bit more controversial. And so you had these alternative little bands, but they could kind of go nowhere. But then once Tooth and Nail happened, then it all kind of opened up. And the alternative music had a place in Christian music. Um, and so that kind of, I would say, played out for quite a while, at least until the um, about 2000s. Um, where you had kind of like Christian, Christian music, like explicitly Christian music, like your mainstream Christian music. And then you had kind of alternative Christian music. Um, and all the major Christian labels created some kind of alternative kind of division. Um, and after that kind of got played out, I mean, in some ways, what was good and bad about that is a lot of what kind of the pioneers, I mean, people before me, we were just trying to say, hey, we're Christian artists. We just want to make art. We don't have to talk about Jesus all the time. Yeah. It kind of it played out that way. 
but then it was like, okay, then what are we doing? Why is there a Christian industry? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, what makes this different? And then, and why are you here? Why, why won't you just, you know? So it kind of created kind, a little bit kind of, of like, confusion. It's kind of like Republican yeah. music. Like, we're going to have Republican music. And it's like, wait, my political affiliation has nothing to do with, right. you know, but it's like, but no, but right, we're all, no. the, but we're, you can know that when you listen to us that we're Republican and we're going to put, you know, capitalistic, you know, ideology into our music. Which would be fine. But imagine if you were creating Republican music, but you refuse to talk about politics. Yeah. Yeah. That's what, that's what I'm saying. That's yeah. what kind of happened. Um, which in some ways you talk about success, I would say that was a success. Yeah. You know, there were many, many of us who pushed for that, to have that place in the Christian market, um, that artists could just be artists and that, you know, um, and also to kind of push back against those who were just using Jesus and the gospel and certain God words, you know, you know, just to, to make money off of that and to kind of sell this kind of fake propaganda. Um, <clears throat> so that kind of played out. And then, you know, if you follow the kind of history of Christian music into like the 2000s, what happened, I would say next was the worship music. And, you know, and I was a part of that. Um, you know, if I even there was a period I took like a year or so off and just wrote worship music and um, before it kind of really became commercialized. And, and I had some projects, even like when I first found the Catholic faith, I wrote like a rock and roll mass, which <laughs> thank God never did. But, um, man, I would, pay, I, I, would pay, really, I would pay I, money I, for that. I would buy that. I would buy that just to listen to that around the house. Well, it was artistically, it would have been cool. I mean, I didn't, you know, I didn't know better it was before I understood, um, liturgy and I've always been opposed to, um, any contemporary music and the liturgy. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was very like shoegazy and all kinds of stuff. It was really cool, but I was just so you got to put that out. You have to put that somewhere where someone can pay like five dollars to get that whole that whole recording. Because I would pay five. Yeah, I would pay money for that. Well, okay. Um, you pay five dollars for it. You'd say yeah, done. $5. Done. Yeah. Well, no, I I, I don't um, know what the upper limit is on what I would pay, but I would definitely pay money right, yeah. just to have that. Well, some of those songs have actually been released, so okay. I'll have to point those out to you later. Okay. Um, yeah, I had this whole kind of concept because I was so excited to kind of find, you know, this notion of the mass and like, okay, there's these parts, you know, like the Gloria and then there's the Kyrie, and so I just write these kind of like shoegazy parts um, um, using some of the text and whatever. Um, so I thought what was good about the worship movement thing was, in some ways, I thought it brought Christian music back. Because this was like explicit, okay, you know. In, in one sense, what makes it worship? Well, it, it would at least be God directed. But then there was some kind of gray area, like, well, then it's about God, or maybe it's about your faith. But at the beginning, you know, when it, when it didn't become a thing, um, there was something special about that. I really think that um, Christian artists who did want to sing about their faith. Um, it gave them a place for that, and there was kind of a special time there for a few years. Was it? Um, but like anything, was it that, like anything else? It kind of got ruined. <laughs> well, was it? Sounds like at first that maybe it was uh, like there were people trying to make explicitly Christian music in order to make 
maybe to yeah maybe to make money but then it sounds like when worship hit the scene a little bit it was like okay well we're going to be really explicit or or at least that worship was was maybe too explicit to be disingenuous about or yeah i mean at the time yeah because at the very beginning i mean the whole christian music industry was created by um you know through the jesus movement these some of them pretty successful musicians who left kind of the world because they wanted to sing about Jesus. Even Bob Dylan did that. You know, even U2 did that. Yeah. Um, but they kind of created an industry. And that changed into like, oh, because they were like, well, we're going to forsake money to sing about Jesus. Well, then that became, oh, if we sing about Jesus, we'll make money. Yeah. <laughs> so the same thing happened with worship is that the beginning of the worship mu- music movement was this idea that it's not a performance, okay? It may not even be the best crafted song. Yeah. But it but it comes from the heart. It's a it's a prayer set to music. I mean, it's like the Psalms. <laughs> yeah, that was always the and, thing that categorized it for me was uh are are you like I remember having conversations where someone who didn't really understand worship music was just kind mm-hmm. of performing a song and I remember just being asking the question like do you feel like we're praying this or do you feel like we're performing this i remember that being kind of like a at least for me right involved in that that was kind of always the discussion like are we praying this or are we performing this yeah and it's hard i mean i mean back then i mean i had a different kind of theology so at first you know yeah it was all about the authenticity of this really being like in the spirit and coming from the heart and you know, and kind of like being, you know, that was everything. And that was, that would be determined. And, you know, you'd say things like, oh, it really sounds anointed and all those kind of phrases. Um, but I will say, I mean, I was there and, um, and especially for some of the key people. I mean, regardless of the theology, I mean, the intention was pure heart. And it was, it was great. I mean, we would literally just get together and there were concerts that would last for hours and hours and hours. We would just be there to, to worship God. You know, and this is in a context, you know, pretty much non-liturgical Christians. So, I mean, there's, there's no divine liturgy or mass to go to. There's no liturgy of the hours to pray. There's not even a rosary. I mean, like, yeah. you know, you, you go to church, sing some songs, you hear a sermon. This was like, no, no, worship now is going to be like the main thing. And then we'll be taught and whatever. Um, so, and it was, it was great. I mean, there was a purity of it. I mean, um, I mean, on the, the industry side of things, I mean, once they realized that there was kind of a business model here and it was becoming popular, then, yeah, then it becomes a thing that they commercialize and then you kind of just kind of paint by numbers and it gets, it got ruined that way. Now, me on a personal level, as I became more traditional in my faith, and more liturgical then I would say I I almost really didn't even believe in that anymore and really feared it. And I still feel a little bit the same way. I mean, because I don't think that prayer and worship is this, you know, mystical experience where you throw away your reason and your will and you just kind of open up to any thing that happens. I really, I don't believe that. I think it's very dangerous. If you're just going to open yourself up to the spirit world, well, there, I mean, there are, they're fallen spirits. They're evil spirits, you know, as much as they're a Holy spirit. So, um, you can't just open yourself up to spirits. Um, 
you know, in our, in our, even our own minds and our, uh, we deceive ourselves all the time. And so I, I don't really, you know, kind of believe in that kind of worship. I would even call it worship. I mean, I think you can sing songs and I think you can pray. And I think there, you still could have an experience that could be defined as mystical. But they were, you know, we're talking about tension. To me, there would always be tension of wondering, is this really God? Is this, yeah, you know, demonic? Is it just me? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Um, so I think, you know, worship really is, you know, liturgical and um, there's a place for other kinds of prayer and putting music to it, but not, not how, you know, that type of faith, you know. And I was disappointed, you know, when I converted to see all that, you know, go into the Catholic Church. Um, uh, so, Were you, well, you and I have even argued about that sometimes. Yeah, <laughs> not yeah. argued, but well, we, yeah, but just, we've kind of poked each other on that a little bit. Yeah, trying to <laughs> trying to figure it all out. I mean, that's what I mean. That's why I'm I'm thinking throughout all of this is like, man, I just I don't even know. <laughs> I don't even know. But uh, I was going to say though. Were you, were you ever, was it always easy for you to just separate or refuse to, I guess the bad word I'm looking, but I mean, the word I want to say, that's probably the bad word. I love word. bad like, words. Well, I like, love bad words. Well, I meant, <laughs> well, I meant like monetize, like, I, I guess like capitalize on, cause it sounds like when, the, when, um, when, uh, my little dog China started breaking out, you kind of just set, distanced yourself from that and then went into this worship phase and then when that started becoming more like people are making money off of it you're kind of like just it sounds like you're having to keep you know walk walking off into the desert only to find a bunch of like uh <laughs> record label record labels and stuff chasing you out there um well about the record label there was times labels would chase me to a certain extent yeah i consider it more like career suicide than uh <laughs> yeah but were you ever, um, were you ever tempted not to yeah, were you ever no, tempted to like I, no, I think you're right. I mean, I mean, it, I definitely, that was, it's part of my, I would say like my story is kind of two tensions. I mean, my personal tension of what am I supposed to do with my life? Is it to be at this explicit, like religious ministry life or is my life to be kind of creative and, you know, and that's kind of played out in sort of business ventures as well. That's a tension I live with. Okay. Yeah. We've covered that a lot. The other tension is, um, I don't have any problem, you know, like with money, you know, I'm, I mean, I've gone through extremes in that of trying to be all authentic, you know, kind of punk ethic type of thing. But I, I definitely, um, there are certain things that I, I do value, you know, it's sacred character. I would never use God or anything like that, you know, like just to make money. I would never do that. And and even things that are not, you know, spiritual. I mean, things that I consider just a creative work. Um, that's just who I am, even being Gen X. It's like I refuse to sell out. Now, I do make compromises now I <clears throat> would, that I wouldn't have done when I was younger because not all compromises are bad. But you're correct. I would say if you look at my timeline, that's one tension that I was kind of deal with is where I feel like I'm pushed to compromise something that I won't. 
yeah, there's a breaking point, and I'm often yeah, walking into the kind of proverbial desert, and I lose a lot. I've lost a lot of opportunities because of that. Um, and I, you know, I don't like the effect that it's had on other people. You know, because you know, when you're married, and you have children or or friends or band members. So I'm sensitive to that. I don't like, you know, it's not like I'm just going to live my life on my own principles and I'm not going to consider how, the choices I make of how they affect other people. But with that said, um, yeah, I don't think I've, I've really changed much over the years in that um, I'm not going to, there's certain things I'm not going to compromise. Yeah. Um, like I, I really, I really admire the kind of, I mean, it sounds like, for you, it's kind of like you've been able to discern and, and identify when this is getting abusive and when it is authentic. That that's, what's been hard for me, especially, you know, graduating from school and then getting into this weird area where, cause you know, I'm not a musician, but to have someone pay you to come speak about Jesus. I mean, it makes a little more sense when someone pays me to come do something that's more like training as far as, you know, the, the theoretical side of my job. But when someone pays you to, to go somewhere and speak, I mean, for the longest time, it was just like, yeah, just cover my, just cover my travel expenses and stuff like that. Um, when it starts, well, I was just going to say like, when it starts getting weird is, is yeah. When, when, yeah, just that whole tension. And I know speaking with some other people, you know, like, um, so I work for a church and having to hire someone to come out and, you know, lead music for a retreat or something like that. Then you start getting into this weird mix of like, okay, am I hiring a performer or am I hiring someone to come in? Like you said, like quote unquote mm-hmm. wor- worship. And then, you know, I remember I, we were speaking with some, a, a band that's local here and he was saying that he just, um, yeah, he has a hard time with what he thinks are some people that are just, they're, they're positioning themselves as these quote unquote worship leaders, but are, you know, requesting like large amounts of money and they need to have, right. you know, they need to have Fiji water in their thing. And they just like getting too fancy. It was kind of like the words that they were saying. And, but, but I, I was pushing back on that guy saying, man, it's a hard line. I mean, it's a hard line mm-hmm. to, to discern. Like when is asking for a rental car, getting too fancy and forsaking the authenticity, <laughs> the authenticity of it. And when is yeah. it like practical? That's what I'm having personally a hard time with. I don't think it's wrong at all to get paid, um, you know, to speak or preach at all. I mean, to me, the compromises are when it's like, okay, now if you could kind of, you know, not say this or that, you know, or, you know, like, I mean, Catholic is a little easier than, because, I mean, there are official teachings. So Mm -hmm. if, if you were getting paid to speak in a Catholic context and they're like, well, if you could just kind of, not really be explicit about the teachings of the church. That to me would be a compromise. Yeah. You know, and then if you're concerned about it because they're paying you like that, that to me is more the tension that I would be most concerned about. Yeah. Um, the idea of, um, you know, am I making too much? Granted, I don't think I've ever had a problem. With that. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, but if I, you know, tend to look at other people and, you know, try not to judge, but, you know, just, I don't know. I, I think it's just a, an integrity issue. Um, I don't know. You, you know, I mean, you just have to deal with things of, 
it'd be hard to judge from the outside. Yeah, because it, 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 if the, you're saying I'm I'm 20 grand to come in and play a concert, <laughs> and you know the church, yeah, doesn't have that money, yeah, where they could get it, but they're like, man, if I mean we, we we've got donations, we've got a great budget to work with. Our total budget's like 50 for this whole festival, but you want 20 of it, yeah. Um, I mean, and they're like, well, I mean, could you take 10? I mean, we generally pay like three to five thousand max for <laughs> yeah. band, yeah. And they're like, well, we'll give you 10. No, man, 20. I would say, you know, I can't make a definitive thing, but in my conscience, you know, then I have real numbers. I mean, they've been transparent with me. They're saying, I mean, here's our budget, and we're giving you almost half the entire budget. I mean, we've paid for, like, you know, Bishop Barron to come in. We've got, like, three nuns coming in. We've got to pay for the grounds and all the tents and the vendors and all the food, security, all this stuff, and you're wanting like half of it because now you're a Catholic rock star. I would, um, it's not for me to make that decision, but if it was me, I would feel wrong. Yeah. I'll put it that way. It's not for me to say so and so would be wrong to make that, to demand that, but I would say I would not, I would hope that I would not do that. Yeah. Um, and, well, the other, tem- <laughs> the other temptation is curating your kind of like public. This is something that's becoming kind of a problem in the Catholic world is that everyone wants to be a Catholic speaker. And so it's like curating your, and I find this tension sometimes too, where I'm like, this is who I am. And I want to put this on social media. And like, we could argue about whether or not I even have to put anything out, but there is a part of me that like, you know, likes that creative process of putting something out. And then there'd be, there'll be this question that this like thought that goes across my mind right before I publish it, which is like, Oh man, does this, does this, uh, yeah, like what what is the image that I'm trying to put out? Like you said, like am I am I am I being the monastic person or am I being the secular person and and will will other people understand that tension in my life or will other people be able to say, "Okay, this is he's not representing the church he works at when he puts out this thing." Or you know what I mean, there's I'm just very yeah. very conflicted in general about that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think yeah, I think the problem then, I mean I think the modern like Catholic church, I mean, took a lot from the Protestant churches and that was kind of turning kind of preachers into celebrities, yeah. you know, or, or, or authors, you know, and, and then people, once they see that this can be, you know, a really fu- good financial move, then everyone wants it. And it's, I mean, it's a pretty big ghetto, if you use that term, but you know, when you're in it, you realize how small it is. Yeah, and everyone wants the same speaking engagements. Everyone wants the same prominence at, you know, conferences and, um, yeah. And I wouldn't say there's anything intrinsically wrong with it, but um, it definitely creates a lot of problems. And um, I mean, I, I, the only answer is to me is you just have to take personal responsibility. I mean, uh, part of it, the culture is built because of things happening because there are great authors and there's great books and there's great speakers and everyone wants them because they're a blessing to people. And then it creates a culture around it, but it's everyone's personal responsibility not lose touch with themselves. And we all have to um, be vigilant with ourselves or be accountable to some people who can call us out and say, you know, you're kind of losing it. (laughs) You're kind of getting lost in your persona, you know, and it's easy to do. Do you have people, Um, do you have people in your life that can do like, do you have, or or are you normally that person to your friends? 
Like, do you have people in your life that call you out on? I, I've had a hard time. I, I, I would think so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. whether I listen, I don't know. <laughs> not. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I hope so. I mean, even a lot of things that we're talking about, I mean, you know, these, this is my reflection. Yeah. At this stage of my life. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't want anyone who hears this to give the impression like, this is my account of how I did it all right and avoided all hypocrisy. You know, it's, this is my reflection of what I've learned from even, you know, my own mistakes. I, I do think I'm proud of times when I made the right decision and made the hard decision and lost because of it. Yeah. Um, I guess I'm just, but, I, I guess I'm just saying that cause yeah. I have a hard, I, I even have such a hard time discerning when I feel like other people are calling me out. There's a lot of times where I'm like, Man, you just you're just not you're just not getting me. You're just not understanding. Me. You know what I mean? Like I, <laughs> I have a hard time. Uh, I think I kind of float. I can float to like I have friends, but I but when it comes to critiquing what I'm doing or the the creative stuff I'm doing, I think I kind of uh, I'll end up kind of writing off certain and just be like, well, this person isn't really understanding what I'm getting at, so I just kind of move on. Or. Um, <clears throat> Or I just don't yeah, talk. I, mean, all... I just don't talk about it with them, or just don't talk about it with people. I'm like, yeah, I'm just doing this podcast thing. Don't talk to me about it. Like, it's just a thing. Just no one, no one tell, no one talk to me about it. And I, I found this. I mean, I went to when mm-hmm. I, I went recently to a diocese to put on a retreat, and and there's all of these different things online that I do. And uh, she, this woman, came up to me and was trying to ask me how to introduce me, and she's like, um, "Okay, so you work you work for a church?" And I was like, "Yep." That's correct. And then she's like, so tell me about reverb culture. And I was like, no, don't say that. She's like, tell me about <laughs> Lumi box. I'm like, no, 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 let's not bring that. Let's not bring that up either. Like, I, it's like, they're, it's like, uh, not that I'm embarrassed of them, but I am like, I like, it's like, don't, I don't hmm. want, I want to just go do this privately when I'm excited about that. And like, I don't, I have a hard time wanting all those things to blend together and be like, here's, here's Edmund who does reverb culture and is trying to podcast and is also doing, you know, it's like, I don't know why I get this weird, like embarrassed, like, no, 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 don't, I don't want you to know about that. I only want these friends to know about that. (laughs) I I guess for me, I'm only avoid those situations when I'm unsure about a thing. So even when you ask to, you know, even have this conversation, you know, I put it off until I felt like I have a, at least a, a better sense of what I'm doing right now. Yeah. <laughs> so I feel more comfortable saying, yeah, this is what I'm doing. Um, doesn't mean I, of course, fully understand it or it makes sense, but I feel enough peace, you know, to have that conversation. Um, yeah, I'm not really concerned as much about the creative or whether people like get it. Um, I mean, I have those conversations and it's always good to be challenged in this or that. Uh, I would just be more, yeah, we were kind of talking more about, you know, those like embarrassing failures of, um, of just, you know, where you're arrogant or, you know, whatever it is, you're just kind of, we're more of the persona than the person. And I would, I don't know, I'd probably be more critical of myself than other people would be of me at this stage of my life. <laughs> um, so but- I would just. I would kind of see, you know, if I would see or hear myself and I would just kind of probably see all the negatives. Oh man, that's <laughs> me. Go, that's totally man, me. Man, I hate, I, I would just think, oh man, what a horrible person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but I don't know. I, I don't, 
you know, kind of one of our just, yeah, if we had a drinking game going on, um, anytime we say the word tension, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they could, they could take a drink. So, um, yeah, we we're talking about tension and that would kind of be part of the tension is yeah. I don't enjoy the tension of being embarrassed of myself, but I think it's good for me yeah. and I'm willing to, to suffer in that way now. Um, but you seem to, to have realize, a healthy, but you seem to have a healthy, like separation. I, I don't know that I've. I think because I I didn't I haven't had that experience of writing 1000 songs and like perform like I am only kind of tangentially relating to create like people who would consider themselves creatives or artists like I don't consider myself an mm-hmm. artist and so I feel like like so weak when it comes to separating myself from caring whether or not someone gets it you know what I mean like that's where I really feel weak is like I do put something out and I do I do, I try to tell myself I don't care if if people don't understand it or people don't get it or but there also is a part of me that that um that that a kind of craves like you want to be understood at least like a little bit like mm-hmm. like I want to yeah I want to know whether or not this is good that might be the be- that's a bigger thing I want to I'm seeking the approval of people whose taste I I admire because I want to know how if I'm getting better you know yeah. Yeah, I mean a lot of things I think changes over time, especially if you've you know had a enough failure and suffering in your life. Um I mean it's not enjoyable but you definitely I mean how many people say that, you know, who you know, at least we, you know, they've been successful enough in their life. We know who they are, whether it be Gary Vanderchuk or the edge, you know, if you do, they yeah. all say the same things that, that we truly learn more from our failures than our successes. Yeah. And, um, so I, I would just say at this stage in my life that, um, yeah, my perspective is just obviously different than when I was in my teens or twenties or even thirties that, um, I would say it's because of probably more of the negative things in my life um, that have been more of the, the teacher. Um, so, yeah, you know, just kind of having the right perspective. Um, I mean, I, I do want people to like what I do, uh, to appreciate it, um, but I am old enough to where, to a great extent, I don't care yeah. <laughs> what other people think. Yeah. Meaning... I do care what other people think, but if I'm confident in it, like I know this is good, you know, I realize the dream, the vision, like it, I, it's, a, it's successful on that fundamental level. Even though I do care what other people think, it's not to the extent that it would shatter my perspective on it. I wouldn't question it. You know, I would like, I know it's good. Um, this still may hurt if people think that could be the worst thing you've ever done. <laughs> I wouldn't be like, you're just an idiot and you don't get it. But if I was confident, I would just kind of like, well, it hurts a little bit, but, um, yeah, uh, you know, I could be wrong. Well, too. no, I, I, mean, I, I have a healthy, I definitely I have that... a healthy self doubt, but I'm not just like perpetually like, was it good or not? Well, uh, no, I usually I... can know like, yeah, it's good. No, I've really, um, I really like, that's a, that's a new thought technology that I'm taking away from this is, is like, because there is on the one hand, is this good in the sense of do, do do people who consume it think it's good? But then I really like the idea of 
is the vision that I had was the vision that I had for it achieved. And then just if, if that is the case, then it doesn't matter the result. It is that I did, I did complete a vision that I had. And now I'm like reassessing a lot of things I've done. And, and yeah, like there are things that that's how it starts out is I, that's how it's, that's how it begins is I'm in a room somewhere and there's like this frenetic energy in my brain just going like, here's the vision for this thing. It has to come out of you. And, and then there's the, do people get this? Do people understand that comes later? But I guess, I don't know. Yeah. I, that really is hit with me of like, no, no, no. Did, did the, the vision you had originally, what, did you complete it? Like, did you just do it? Did you complete it and do it the way, were you true to the vision you had? Well, it's also the type of people we are. I mean, you know, we're not all the same. You know, I, I've always kind of been a person who approaches life and everything I do of, I mean, even to a fault and, and some, you know, many times I'm wrong and make mistakes, but my, um, my angle on it, my perspective, my drive towards doing a thing is always based upon kind of like telling the truth and doing the right thing, no matter what it costs. Mm. And so, um, artistically and even through ministry, um, I mean, it sounds so triumphalistic and self-righteous. I don't mean it that way. But my perspective is is to, to communicate what needs to be said, whether that's popular or not. Yeah. Whether people want to hear that or not, um, it doesn't mean I don't care. And I not that I enjoy disappointing people or hurting their feelings or offending them. It just means that is how I've always been my entire life, is to tell kind of the audience what I believe they need to hear not based upon they want. So when I create a business and this is, you know, I've learned this now, yeah, in some ways the hard way when I have partners and things like that. Cause the other way of looking at things is, well, you just meet needs, you know, people like that. So go do that, you know? Mm. And how many, how many conversations have I had with someone where like, you know, I'll talk about like, you know, even if I said I can argue that, you know, worship music is not worship. And I can maybe even argue that it's, you know, pseudo mystical and potentially sinful or demonic or whatever it is, you know, and then we got into that conversation and then the pushback could be like, well, I mean, millions of people like it. So, or, you know, or a particular, you know, church or diocese had the event. So that's it. And it doesn't mean I don't respect, you know, particular authorities and the powers that be, but I still would say it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't make it true. Just because a million people like it or just because, um, you know, I dare I say, you know, a bishop approves it, it doesn't make it right. Yeah. It just doesn't magically do so. If so, then we have, then we're in really big trouble with how we see the world in truth. I mean, um, and, you know, but there's a lot of neutral ground. I mean, you could just say that. Uh, a lot of people, you know, are losing a lot of hand strength and they're having difficulty opening jars. And so you invent the ultimate, you know, gripper that allows people to open up jars. You know, there's not really any morality around that. So a smart person saw that there was a need and they met that need to a product. That's good business. Um, I tend not to think that way. I just tend to think of ideas that I think are great, that would be good. And I try to make that a reality, whether 
um, you know, the market says there's a need or not. Jeremy. Yeah. Do you mentioned Gary Vaynerchuk? Do you, I, I'm hearing the whole his whole thing like the market is the market is the market. It sounds like you take you would um, take a less. I I can imagine Gary Vaynerchuk only going after things that can. Uh, no, in some I ways, think, in some ways. Yes, I agree. I mean, he. I do think that is one of his. You could say like, um, well, one of the kind of the buzz terms now. That's one of his lanes. Mm-hmm. But I think he has a, he has another lane, and his other lane is be yourself, be true to yourself, tell your story, your story, and tell it your way. Yeah. And own it, and don't sleep and work and don't live for the weekend. You know what I mean? So he's just as much on that in that lane too. That's true. That's true. saying be yourself, be passionate, be true to yourself. You know, kind of the document don't create, document your life. You know, become a thing, stay true to it. You know, there's an audience for everything. Yeah. So. Whoever you are, man, there's an audience for that. So don't change you. Yeah. I mean, maybe learn how to be the better version of you. Maybe learn how to better communicate, articulate, you know, what it is that you're about in your story. Maybe learn some of the new tools. But I think he would equally say, be true to yourself. And then you'll attract the people who want what you have. So I think it's both. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying, too. I'm not saying it's the way that I'm wired is the better way. It's just that over time, I had to learn that this is who I am. It is how I'm made. Um, and for me to be successful, um, I, I have to recognize that this is going to be my approach. Um, and other people can take the other approach. Now, <clears throat> when you have partners and you've got, you know, both, you know, those two different kinds of people working together, then you have to learn how to make that work. Yeah. Um, that's what I'm saying. So I think it's a both end. Um, but part of it is you have to come to that self-knowledge of knowing kind of who you are. Uh, Man, how old are you now? 115. Man, so I have, I only have like, yeah, like 80 more years until I have that wisdom that you have. (laughs) Now, how old am I really? Let's see. I'm 47. I'll be 48 this year in July. I'm coming up, I'm coming up on 30. So I'm planning, I'm planning, I'm planning like a premature midlife crisis at 30. Oh, it's a a premature. So you're not planning to die at 60. No, 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 no. Yeah. Well, man, I didn't, I didn't even think I'd make it this long. So I (laughs) I almost kind of feel like, um, you know, I got like a bonus round or something. I don't know. See, that's what I want. Like I'm, I'm so ready for that. Like I'm already thinking about like at 70 still like launching website stuff and still like, I really do. I really do want to get to that. I really do. I am attracted to the the wisdom that age and experience brings. Of like, I don't care. Like, this is just the stuff I do. I, I think I'm getting there. Yeah, I mean, I'm slowly getting there. Yeah, I mean, I always wanted to be old when I was younger. <laughs> um, so there's that. But then there's this other side that yeah, I'll be on my deathbed if I live to be 95, and I'll just be thinking about what I'm going to be when I grow up. Yeah. Um, and that's how I. I really kind of think that's just how I am. I don't, I don't know. I, in some ways, I don't feel that different than when I was a five-year-old. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but when I was five, I wanted to be, you know, 45. So I have no idea. Yeah, that's how I think you've said that before, and that's how I feel too. I'm still not sure what I want to be when I grow up. Yeah. Well, man, 
this has been good and uh it was very you you were you were very um you just like jumped right into it you didn't even ask me if we were recording and uh i love the spirit of of this kind of just free form um conversation i would i feel like it's weird to ask but i would ask you like where this is the part at the end where people normally plug a thing or say where people should go or just like i mean i guess you could just tell people what you want them to where you want them to stick something or whatever you want to do whatever you want to do here (laughs) yeah i mean it's still i mean i'm still kind of launching the new thing but shock city artist collective is kind of the um kind of the the new brand that has you know kind of everything with it um you know and i moved back to st louis and so you know, my office is at Shock City Studios um, in St. Louis, and um, so I'm kind of doing it all. Have you thought and, of um, Have you thought of a podcast? I remember you had a show where you piloted uh-huh. a, you piloted a show there for a while. Um, I did a show. Yeah, I did a show for a little while. And then was that with Breadbox like so many Media? Other things, it, yeah, yeah, like so many other things, they abruptly ended. Um, I don't know. I mean, it was definitely. Uh, it's kind of scary because it's something I've not done before. Um, so there's definitely some, some really, uh, there's a lot of tension there, a lot of embarrassment, yeah. <laughs> but I was, I at least was proud that I was willing to embarrass myself and no, I, try something I, new. I definitely think, I definitely think that I would, I would just listen to you. I liked it. I would just listen to you turn on the microphone for 30 minutes. (laughs) It was weird. Uh, It was weird having to go to the commercial breaks in it. I honestly feel like a podcast would have been way better because it's like, it's just, it's just Kevin. It's just Kevin. Kevin in his room talking. Yeah. I mean, yeah, well, definitely it's hard doing kind of the monologue. Like this is even easier. I mean, that's why interviews are so much you know, better and more popular is because once you kind of get into it, then it kind of is just, yeah. you're just running and, but the monologue's kind of the same way. Like once you kind of get into the zone, if you're a talker, like we are, yeah, um, you can just kind of get, keep going. But then, um, then I, yeah, I mean, there was these time constraints where you had to kind of at least block for the commercial segments. So that was a struggle. Cause once I would kind of really feel comfortable and, lose in a good way kind of track of time um then i'd have to abruptly stop and then i'd be conscious of the next segment so yeah a free-flowing kind of podcast where i could kind of just make up my own segments would have been better but i don't know i i I did get kind of into it you know i I got into mark Marin. yeah um at the time and um so there was a part of me that thought um yeah, I, I could get into doing some kind of podcast and maybe doing it again. Um, but I, I don't know what I would talk about right now. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, well, but that's, <laughs> that, but that's the whole Mark Marin, Joe Rogan. Like I listen to all those and that, that's what kind of influenced this was. I was like, you know what? Like what? Like I, I love doing that and I want to do that for a long time. And I know that I'm going to just keep doing this. And instead of it being like, well, is this going to be a reverb thing? Is this going to be a, right. this thing? Is this going to be something that makes money? It's like, no, like I have been doing this, but I haven't been collecting it all in one place and, and uh, wanting to just put it in one place. So, Well, I mean, I mean, in all seriousness, I mean, this conversation um, probably would be, you know, my ideal because 
um, you know, there was, you know, kind of notes. We talked about like kind of the two sides of myself and the tension I live in that. We were able to freely talk about issues of faith and also issues of art and culture and business and stuff. And that is who I am. Uh, you know, I like to talk about all those things. Yeah. And, um, you know, we kept like the profanity and that kind of stuff out of it. But, um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe this would be the, the beginning of a new idea for a podcast. Because um, the one with Redbox obviously was very focused. It was supposed to be kind of Catholic teaching and stuff like that, which there's some benefit to that because it's focused. And, um, but yeah, I think what I could be excited about would be something kind of like this. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe you and I should just talk all the time and record it. And <laughs> we can put it. Well, I do like the, like, I do think I do think what's interesting, like what what I love about this medium is, so when you're with Breadbox or with with someone else, like you said, like you have to kind of be beholden to maybe what they're kind of going for. But for me, it's yeah. like I can have you on. I could have you know a Catholic psychologist on, and then I could have on. I had on um this journalist Julia Dune, Dween, who uh, covered Pentecostal snake charmers, and who you know like just have. I, then another time I had. This guy Hunter Matson, who's complete atheist, you know, but but very thoughtful and and interesting person. So like, you know, get being able to, you know, and I know that at some point my little secret corner is going to be exposed a little more, and I'm going to get a little more nervous about who I'm inviting on. But at least for now, mm-hmm. it's like you know, not caring about, like that you could have on someone who curses profusely and then have on Bishop Barron or, or whatever, like, or whoever is mm-hmm. the, right. the clean version of that. That's what I'm really, that's what I'm interested in. That's what I would love to, that, yeah, I would listen to your podcast. That's my long way of saying I would listen to your podcast. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, well, you know, I'm a fan of you, so you're my hero. Yep. You're mine. Uh, <laughs> All right. So same, same time next week, huh? So. Yeah, that'd be great. You just do all the work of editing and all this blab. And <laughs> well, sounds good. Well, I'm I'm gonna say thanks for coming on, but hang on for a little right, bit. Thanks for having me. Okay. Tell me all your secrets and lies. I'll give you a little piece of my own soul. You were never one to complain. Take this with a grain of sorrow You exercise your lovers and demons Drink yourself to sleep like you did my arms To wake up in a stranger's bed Take this with a grain of sorrow Chase it with a shot of pain It's suicide I'm drowning in your shadow It's good to finally realize You're as plastic as your shallow Shallow Religion was your fetish and drug 